Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to our Legend of Korra episode. We know this was a long time coming, especially since our first episode was The Last Airbender. And we've teased this episode from the very first episode we ever did. We have. And as you all know, we did have to postpone it because of the passing of Chadwick Boseman. We wanted to do an episode about him and Black Panther's influence. So go check that out if you haven't already. Yeah, please do. And with that, yeah, we're finally here. We watched Legend of Korra. We're here to talk about it. We're here to dive into it. But before we get into that, we have uh, a, a small announcement and just more little details. Yeah, so we're planning on moving the podcast from bi-weekly episodes to possibly weekly episodes. We're trying to keep a consistent schedule, but yesterday our mic stopped working right now we're trying to get the technical issues on that so if you notice the sound is a little funny um there's some white noise in the background so that's the reason but we're working on getting that fixed so that our audio stays top notch other than that yeah we're planning on moving the episodes release dates to being weekly instead of bi-weekly that way we can release more content for you hopefully we can do a more holiday episodes with the holidays coming up so that's pretty exciting fortunately we've come into the position where we may be having more time on our hands so that means we have more time to focus on the podcast which means more time for us to edit outlines and just record in general so we're excited about that and like cecilia said we'll maybe do some holiday episodes i was thinking we haven't discussed this and i actually haven't even discussed it with you I was thinking maybe we can do like a Night of the Living Dead episode since that was one of the first movies to have a black protagonist in a leading role. And it was like a bunch of other stuff, but I thought that'd be a neat little episode we can do. That'd be interesting. I like that. Yeah, it's really exciting. And big thanks to Gio for editing the podcast Um, with more time on my hands personally. Um, My goal is to learn more about the sound editing process and contribute more on that end. So... Uh, fingers crossed that it works out well yeah i'm excited for you to help me out but honestly little side note from an audio editor it's not really hard it's actually pretty (laughs) simple if most of it is there's little quirks here and there that are really annoying but we'll get the hang of it and we'll be pounding out double the episodes they'll be great hopefully hopefully so that's all we have on the housekeeping end of things also one more thing Please, if you haven't done so already, write reviews for us on Apple Podcasts. That helps us out immensely. Yes, please be vocal about your love for us because the more people see it, the more people want to reach out and it helps us so much. We don't have a Patreon or any funds set up yet to donate to this account. Yeah, ways you can love out loud without spending money is just easy, simple. Just leave a like and leave a comment, write a review, share us, follow us, tag us. And it's just interact with us. Yeah. yeah. Especially those Apple podcast reviews really help us get our podcasts out there on Apple Podcasts alone. I know Spotify and SoundCloud don't really have things like that. I know SoundCloud allows you to co- comment, but Apple Podcasts is the only one that really lets you review. So, yeah, please go ahead and do that. Other than that, though, we are done with announcements, so we can get into Legend of Korra. Mm-hmm. Would you like to start with how you got into Korra? Yeah, so like I mentioned in the Avatar episode, I mean, I knew about Avatar's existence and its hype ever since I was a kid. 
And then Legend of Korra, when that came out, I didn't hear much about it, to be honest. I mean, I saw a few people talking about it here and there. I know it was very niche back then <laughs> to either hardcore Avatar fans or hardcore Avatar fans who were very critical about it back then and still can be today. It seemed very niche to me. Obviously, it was marketed towards kids, so I'm not sure if how it did like with that demographic on Nickelodeon. But yeah. So Geo actually had the Blu-rays for both Avatar The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra that I had been procrastinating on for forever. <laughs> I'll admit that. I can admit that, Geo. Mm. He's smiling over there. But yeah, once Avatar came out on Netflix, it was easier for me to binge. And once I finished Avatar, Legend of Korra hadn't been announced on Netflix yet. So that's when I asked Gio, like, Gio, I need more Avatar. Can you please loan me Legend of Korra? I want to see what happens with the next Avatar. If the criticism is as justified as people make it seem. And we also wanted to do a podcast episode on that. So I started watching it. I finished season one on Blu-ray. By the time I was done with that, Netflix had already announced season two's release. So I just binged from there. And wow, I really binged it. <laughs> Yeah, and like Cecilia said, I had the Blu-rays with me. I actually, I watched Korra. I watched the first season of Korra. I watched it in its entirety. On Nickelodeon? On Nickelodeon. Oh, I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, I watched it. Well, I actually watched it on the website because I think every week they'd post the episode, full episodes on Nickelodeon.com. Nickelodeon oh, the glory days. Yeah, before streaming and everything. So I watched those episodes, but then I just got preoccupied with a bunch of other things. I think I was also like, not to say this is a kid's show, but I was growing up, so I was like, I need more manly material, like The Walking Dead and all that. And now as I've grown up, I'm like, wow, I mi really missed wow, Legend Korra of Korra. Really did come around the same time. Yeah. And so I stayed away, but then when I was getting into Blu-rays, I bought The Legend of Korra because I really wanted to watch the whole thing, and especially since I heard very interesting things coming out of the show, and I wanted to be a part of that and see what happened because I was truly invested in Korra and I love the first season. I really think that the first season does, I believe stand above all the other seasons. Not to say that the other seasons are bad. They're just season one, super, super good in my opinion. And yeah, it took me until I got the Blu-ray to watch the full series, which was about like, I think 2017 or 18. And mm, yeah. yeah, so it was a while, but I really enjoyed it. And I really liked the, I liked all the characters. I love Korra. I really think she's a great female protagonist. And I we're going to get into that because I really want to yeah. spew everything I have to yeah. say about her. And this episode is going to be more focused on Korra since we dove into the world of Avatar a lot in The Last Airbender. And I will say Korra does a good job of more world building in the future. But like I said, this episode's going to be geared towards Korra's character. Yeah, exactly like you said, we're going to focus a lot more on Korra this episode. We already dove into everything, so we want to focus on her because I think she's just such a impactful character. Definitely. But aside from Korra, there's a lot of representation we saw in the show that actually a lot of people didn't really pick up on until its Netflix release, which I thought was interesting because this show has such good representation for himbos and people of all sorts of himbos, especially going back as far as Cusco's new groove with Kronk being what a lot of people say is the first himbo. Yeah, and the himbo debate just, just popped up on the internet recently, so let's dive in. Exactly. So we have Bolin, who is, I believe, 
the perfect example of what a himbo is. Let's backtrack. So for those of you who don't know what a himbo is, I'm assuming it's just taking the H from he <laughs> and putting it in front of bimbo. I'm guessing those words came around at the same time. But anyway, the Oxford Dictionary definition of a himbo is an attractive but unintelligent man. Which is precisely what I think Bolin is because not only is he just shredded from head to toe it's not up for debate it's not up for debate he is boom he you know they actually say and this might get into spoiler territory but he's actually might be a descendant from the actual wall of bossing say because of his just pure impenetrable abs (laughs) and he might be goofy and he might not always know what's going on, <laughs> but damn, is he just rock solid as Those the earthbender eyes. he is. Those green eyes, the smolder, him in his freaking actor outfit. The mover outfit. The mover outfit. What's his name? Nut Tuck. Oh, no. If that isn't oh, a clear no. sign that the creators knew exactly what they were doing when they wanted to create the quintessential perfect representation of a himbo. But you know, whoever does end up with him, spoilers, we do know who it is, but we won't say is a lucky girl because that man quintessential himbo right there top tier top of line top shelf everything bolin needs more love we need a spin-off as joey had a spin-off from friends we do need a bolin show of just him he's a lava bender exactly there's only two known lava benders in the world and he's currently. one of them but yeah that's our little spew about himbos and how oh much we appreciate bolin and how great he is. He's so sweet. You can't not love him. Okay, season two gets a lot of hate just because Bolin gets a lot of screen time. And the movers, you know, the amount of time they spend on the movers arc is a little ridiculous. But, you know, who makes it up? Who carries it? Bolin. Bolin. Exactly. So, aside from all of that, we can really get into the other elements of the show. Before we get into Korra, we can talk about a bit about the world building that was developed. And how we got to see... A lot more of the world, or at least how the world looks in this new age of Avatar world, being that a lot of it has moved towards modernization and industrialization industrialization and more of a 20s theme, which I thought was really fascinating to look at, especially since it kept it did keep the um, Asiatic fantasy world, but it added like a new 20s aesthetic. And I really like that, especially when you do see Republic City and they have cars and they have lights and the new outfits and everything. Yeah. And... For some, it seems like a big culture shock, like going from kind of ancient Asiatic fantasy to new modern. Yeah, but it was about 80 years yeah, after it's... Avatar. And, you know, once modernization picks up, it picks up rapidly. Yeah, and I really liked seeing all that. And then we got to look at more of the northern and southern water tribe and how they've been changing. We didn't really get to see that much in The Last Airbender just because... You know, the war was affecting, especially the Southern Water Tribe. Yeah, but we can see in Korra that they've revitalized themselves. It's still not as grand. It's not on the scale of the Northern Water Tribe, but it's a lot more than Katara's little village. Yeah, exactly. And they've definitely come back since the war. And we do see that how since the Northern Water Tribe was successful in defending back the Fire Nation, that they're still stuck in their spiritual roots and that they still have those kind of older mentality, I guess you'd say, or like more, yeah, I guess just older mentality. And then the Southern Water Tribe has been 
progressing more and that's why we see like how they're making the carnival of the spirits and how they have things like that while up in northern which we see in the first the second season and northern water tribe is with unalak yes in the second season what i really liked about Korra is that it showed more of the water tribes because there's less focus on the fire nation since we did have so much of that in avatar so i think they found their balance in that sense yeah exactly and i mean of course with Korra being a water bender originally how could we not and we i really appreciated getting to see more of that world along with that something that i found very fascinating was that because we had a lot more antagonists in this show we get four antagonists well main antagonists and they each have like really different political or just philosophical ideologies when in their conquest and we see different ideologies like the idea of anarchy and like having no governments and letting the people be free and govern themselves we see the idea of like uh, unification totalitarianism where in the end they want to unify the earth kingdom because of things that happen and that while it seems good because you have a unified country it's done through force and conquest rather than diplomacy and working together and then in the first season which i do think amon is still maybe my favorite villain and how which we'll get into a lot with the non-benders in this show but amon's ideology of using a revolution or revolutionary ideas to gain power for himself was reflected i believe on a lot on the real world especially with like really terrible people like stalin who kind of used lenin's revolution in russia and the fight against the bolsheviks to level to level himself up and give himself power and then when he had power he stood nothing that lenin or the other russian revolutionaries wanted he just wanted everything for himself and that was something that amon was heading towards he has more layers and there's a lot more depth in him than just like power but that's something i really noticed and i really liked and how he used their the non-benders frustration and fear to give himself power and that was something i thought was very fascinating mm-hmm. and from there we can get into the non-benders which is a big important part in the first season of the show yeah so they really the writers really answered the question of what is this world like through the non-benders perspective and we get that through Amon and his equalist movement and we can see that with characters like, example, the Cabbage Man, they were very frustrated with benders. And there's a lot more non-benders in this world than there are benders. Then- yeah, so one big example of that in season one was the episode where non-benders are being punished for protesting that they just want to be treated equally as benders. And we have these police officers who are metal benders abusing their power to really corral them like animals until Cora comes and saves them and stops them from being rounded up like cattle. So I think that really reflects how police forces in our world treat minorities as well. Yeah, and we also see how much of a power dynamic there is among benders versus non-benders that we see in Republic City that all the representatives of the each nation are all well we assume are all benders but they're obviously representing each bending nation they're not really representing any non there's no person there that's representing, representing non-bending. E- the nation that was built on each form of bending 
Exactly. And we see how non-benders don't really have a voice. They don't get to make any rules. They're kind of just at the will and the whim of benders and what they decide. Yes, so the police are benders, they take the side of benders, so that was an interesting commentary. Yeah, so Cora really answers that question of what if, what if non-benders actually spoke out? Because the obviously the characters who got more screen time were benders. We want to see the action and all that, um, but if you think about it in a societal context as well, obviously society is going to favor these benders with special gifts. We can see that with the Fire Nation way back in Avatar, how did the Fire Nation rise to power? Through their bending. So, yeah, even the Sun Warriors who were against, like, conquest, they purely used it for spiritual gain. But once people started using it for political gain, then it created a divide between non-benders and benders. We can contrast this with the Air Nomads. So the difference between the Fire Nation using their bending for political power for physical power we can contrast this with the air nomads and the air acolytes so with that the element of air is more focused on the mental state than the physical state or using for physical force so there i would say in the air nomad culture i would say that's the only bending form where there's less stigma towards non-benders if that makes sense yeah, perfectly. And I think that is definitely shown with the Air Acolytes in Legend of Korra, too, since they're all people who are non-benders that do take up the teachings of airbending because they, like you said, are about more of mentality and spirituality than their bending. Like their bending might connect them closer, mm-hmm, but to the spiritual world. Yeah, but no airbenders, I, at least we've seen, would prevent a non-bender from taking on these teachings and learning from them too. Yeah, so that's the most inclusive form, or that's the most inclusive bending culture, I would say. The Earth Kingdom, you can argue that. I'm not sure if the Earth Queen and Korra or the Earth King and Avatar were benders. I'm assuming they weren't because they seem pretty powerless against um, other benders. But um, that's a whole nother conversation that could just be linked to the diary, using puppets, all that. And yeah, I just I think that was one of my favorite parts about Korra was just showing the bender sides of things and how it related a lot to what we see now and how people just that power dynamic again of people without a voice and people with a voice and like minorities and majorities and who we see as that, too, because in truth, there are probably more people of color than there are white people especially with like 2 billion people being in China and India. But we can see the power dynamic, especially with like... You mean in representation, for example, like in Hollywood and stuff, with English being the dominant language. I mean, shortly it's becoming Mandarin, I think. But even then, like it's encouraged in a lot of countries to learn English. Exactly. You said it better than I could have. And with all the talk about non-benders... And different ideologies. I do want to get into, I think, the meat of this podcast, which is about the women of the show, as well as most importantly, Cora. And with the women, we have a lot of people. Oh, there's such a good roster of women, non-developed characters and developed characters. Exactly. So 
I mean, there's so many developed characters that I can't even nitpick a lot about the ones that aren't developed, but I will throw out that um, Tenzin's wife, Pema. I wish we had gotten more backstory with her. I wish her arc was... I wish she had an arc, and I wish her character was more than just sweet housewife who makes dumplings for her kids. But, you know, other than that, there's a really good roster of strong women in this show. Yeah, and we can start off by talking about Lin and Suyin Beifong, who are pretty big characters and are very respected in their respective roles. We see Lin as a as the chief of police and the leader of the metal bending police in Republic City and we see that she is very well respected. People take her seriously, people listen to her and they she doesn't really take BS from anyone. She's a really hard woman and she's just tough as nails. And then we see her sister later in season three, I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm who Suyin, who is her younger sister. And at first she's kind of like a, we see her as like rambunctious and kind of a uh, troublemaker. troublemaking teenager. But now she's the creator and leader of the metal clan, of the metal clan which is called Zaofu. And she like created this whole place herself and she leads it with a lot of respect again. And she has almost as much, probably equally as much as respect as Lynn. Mm-hmm. And we see them, and we see them take on major plot points. We see them have major character development between the two of them and by themselves. And we see Suyin is a mother as well as a leader. And she's still able to do it all basically. And she's able to, take care of her family, take care of her country, and at one point lead pretty much a war, too. Yeah, I don't know how she does that. Yeah. She, yeah, they, she was so well, well respected that the president of Republic City even offered her the position of the new leader of the Earth Kingdom at the end of season three, I believe, early season four, once the, spoiler, once the Earth Queen is murdered. Yeah, so we should oh, we should begin these episodes by saying, spoiler alerts everywhere because we do it's kind of hard not to considering we talk about entire character arcs yeah but yeah those are that's just two examples of very strong women in the show yeah and she suyin literally created a utopia it literally her city literally looks like that meme that's like the world without blank or whatever it looks like meet the robinsons utopia (laughs) It's very true. Like they managed to have these beautiful cities made completely out of metal while in like a beautiful untouched valley too. So there's that. On the flip side of Suyin, there's Lin, who's a little bit more, they're equally as headstrong, but Lin is a little bit more emotionally guarded. The only gripe I have about her is that they made Toph and her daughter cops, which, uh, yeah. I mean, we don't see the police force in Korra based off being created for the purpose of, you know, racial injustice or being created as a result of systemic racism. It's more of just a result of crime fighting. I don't know. That's a whole other debate we can get into, but there's that as well. Just some food for thought. One of my favorite characters in Legend of Korra is Jinora. I think she's an amazing, well-written character, and I love that they added her to this series thought she really brought a lot to this series with her entire arc and i think her character is really beautiful so jenora is the granddaughter of avatar ang and the daughter of tenzin so she was raised on air temple island in a very spiritual setting from a young age she was very intelligent and a little bit more 
mature than her younger siblings. So she always played that more mature role. And to me, since season one, she seemed like she was going to be destined for greater things. And I love that they focused on her in season two and season three. She had entire arcs. She's a naturally gifted spiritual soul, and she helps Korra so much throughout the season. She literally helped Korra save the world at the end of season two. By the end of season three, she showed intense leadership again by helping and leading her fellow airbenders, and she really took initiative there. I love her arc so much, and I think she's so intelligent and such a great character, especially because young girls are often underestimated. We can see Tenzin underestimating her in season two. This is out of a fatherly protection, of course, but I love that the writers gave her an entire arc where she gained her independence and became more spiritually sensitive than she already was. So we can't ignore by the end of season three, she grows so much from just a little girl who makes funny comments to Korra. Um, She grows so much. She becomes so in tune with her spiritual side. And she becomes a natural airbending leader, an airbending master. At the end of season three, we see her get her airbender tattoos. She becomes the youngest airbender to receive her tattoos at age 11. Apparently, Aang got his at age 12. And I just love her character. There are not a lot of young girls in media who are just instinctual leaders or written as leaders. I think she's amazing. And she's still young girl she's still a teenage girl she still gets to have romantic relationships and relationships with her siblings and her family but yeah i just love her character (laughs) if you can't tell already and to top it off we also have asami who is our second leading woman in the show she starts off as a kind of a shady character because of her connections to future industries and the fact that the future industries is connected to the antagonist of the show and she was originally actually supposed to betray the Avatar gang, the new Avatar gang. Yeah, but she ended up becoming a very important character and a character that does have a lot of depth, as a lot of the characters do. We see her become a pretty much a leader in her respective business. We see her take initiative, even like initiative to fight against her own father and help the Avatar crew again. And we also, as we know find out that she is also gay as she does fall in love with Korra at the end which we'll talk about with Korra or at least bisexual yeah at least Mm -hmm. bisexual I should say and we see her become a very important partner to Korra in season four as Korra is struggling with a lot and she emotionally emotionally with everything that's happened to her in the past three seasons and we see her open up and connect a lot with Asami the most which I thought was done very well and friendships between women, really good friendships between women. Obviously, we know it ends up being romantic and not platonic, but I love that she can rely on her for emotional support. Yeah, and at first they kind of bicker because there's a little love triangle with Mako and not Bolin, unfortunately. Damn Even it. then, they're not too catty about it. Yeah, they're not too catty about it. They kind of just like throw it on the side and then they become very good friends and connected to each other. Wink, wink. Yeah, they become very good friends. <laughs> And yeah, like there's so many female leads in this show that we can't really talk about them all because there's so many. And I think that's a really important part of the show is that they normalized having well-written, well-rounded, and a lot of female characters. A lot of shows, they usually have very distinctive 
female characters, whether they're in like big leads or like side leads, mm -hmm. and they pop up here and there, but usually it's a lot of men. But this is one of the first shows I've seen, or at least I've noticed, where there's a lot of female characters just around and they all get a, a very decent amount of development. Especially representation with femme women, since Asami is a queer woman and they don't hold back on her physical aesthetics. She puts effort into her appearance. We, girl, we see your purple eyeshadow and your dark lipstick. And from Asami, we also see Lin, who... It's the opposite where she's just rough and tough. I cracked my knuckles when I said that. I didn't mean to. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> uh, she's rough and tough. She's very strong and she's just ready to fight people and brawl. And then we see younger characters like Jinora and even Opal who's in like the more young adult. And we see also just a wide range. Almost again like how Avatar Last Airbender had a good ratio of male and female characters again we see a good ratio of female characters and male characters in this show and i think that that's just very important that they've been doing yeah they have such a good roster of female characters of well-developed female characters honestly thinking of it now it's like how can you not when the face of your show is a, a woman a woman and i know other shows kind of don't do the same thing they'll have a female lead and then they'll have like a majority of men and like i feel like studios think that oh we have a female protagonist so that's our female representation that's right there that's enough cora is not the pink power ranger of the show <laughs> <laughs> exactly she's she's got a bunch of other leading ladies to help her out back her up and one to fall in love with too one last thing about janora so I wanted to analyze one scene in season three. So season three, we know there's a whole airbender arc after harmonic conversion, a bunch of non-benders suddenly gain the ability to airbend. Tenzin takes some of them in and puts them through rigorous training. So he shaves one of the new airbenders heads and he's not happy about it at first until the new airbenders come across these sky bison poachers and they get into a physical confrontation with them. They have to defend themselves. They have to free Jinora, who gets captured by these sky bison poachers. They want to free the bison as well. So all that context. The new airbender who just has his head shaved realizes the reason behind these airbenders shaving their heads is that it allows them to gain greater sensitivity to the air around them and be able to bend the element more quickly. It heightens their reflexes. The point I'm trying to make is that Janora shaves her head to receive her airbender tattoos, but by the time the time skip happens, three years later, her hair's grown out and she's still an airbending master, of course, and she can still hold her own against Kuvira and her army. My point is that she's so good that she doesn't need her head shaved. She's as good as Avatar Yang Chen, who also had her hair grown out. Didn't need the help of the bald head to hide in her reflexes. Yeah, there's my little spiel about Janora. And with all that in mind, about... At age 11. Oh my god. <laughs> no, she was like 13. Well, she was 13 she was when like she was like 13, grew. 14 by the end of the show. Yeah, well, Aang went his whole life with having a bald head. So. <laughs> exactly. She one-upped him. <laughs> Alright, so with all that in mind, this is where we get into the juicy part, <laughs> which is Korra herself, being that she is the leader of this whole show and she is our protagonist. And I really find myself 
adoring Korra more and more as I've grown up and seen and since I've seen the show because I do think that she is such a well-written and such a good all-around character and a good representation for women everywhere young or older because of all the struggles she goes through and how she goes through pretty real struggles repeatedly repeatedly and I just found myself a lot of admiration of the writing that went into her and I didn't half-ass it or just push it on the side because they're we're just trying to appeal to women by giving by making a female protagonist I do Mm -hmm. think that a lot of studios tend to do that I also think the story challenges the typical hero's arc. In a lot of children's media, we see this hero goes through struggle, this hero goes through journey, and then in the end, conflict, resolution, bing, it's happily ever after. With Aang, it's implied that at the end of The Last Airbender, but in Korra, we can see it wasn't that. And then through Korra, we can see that the hero's journey is much more than just beginning end, um, a few losses, then a final win. So we can see that the life lesson in this show is that we are powerful, but we're constantly in a state of becoming and we're constantly in a state of improving ourselves. And I like that Korra is one of the few heroes in media who goes through that and will continue to go through that. Exactly. She has such so much development throughout her character. And I think that a lot of criticism she gets is that she keeps failing or getting caught or just losing. (laughs) But... I think that's important because she doesn't just lose and then miraculously wins. She loses and wins later on through the help of her friends and her basically family. And rigorous training. And rigorous training. But it's not that she she just brushes that off. That holds on to her until the very end of the series. She's constantly thinking about everything she's done wrong. Uh, she always thinks about, she's always reflecting about what she could have done differently and reflecting on herself. I compared this show to The Last Airbender by saying Last Airbender is a quintessential hero's journey from point A to point B. But this show, Legend of Korra, is really about self-discovery. And I think it's just a major character piece about Korra in general because Mm -hmm. she goes through so much emotional trauma, physical trauma, and she overcomes it and she comes back and she keeps adapting and learning and becoming better. And that's why I think it's so admirable about her. And I think that a lot of studios tend not to put that much effort into a female character. They tend to just write her as like a cool, strong, tough woman. And they're like, all right, that's enough. They, they, they got their representation. We'll just leave it at that. But with Korra, they put all in all yeah. the time. It really is a story about self-compassion, patience, and self-love. Yeah, and I think that's that's the moral of her story is we see in the beginning that Korra is very rambunctious and she's very headstrong. She knows she's the Avatar. She doesn't care who knows about it. And she loves being, she revels in being the Avatar, which is very unlike Aang. But it also goes into the idea that the new Avatar is supposed to be the embodiment of the old Avatar's regret or something. Like the idea that Aang regretted not being, he ran away from his duty and he regretted that. So Korra is always ready to take on the mantle of Avatar and be the Avatar. And She rushes head first into conflict. Yeah, and we see that tough side of her and how she's very adaptive to learn the elements very quickly aside from air because that's her 
that's the hard part for her and spirituality but she's ready to just take up the duty of being an avatar and start fighting people and again that's already going against a lot of stereotypes of women because she's not overly emotional or she's not like yeah even being from the water tribe and the water element being associated with like femininity emotions and like the subconscious and the spirit realm she's even growing up in a very well you can argue that southern water tribe isn't that spiritual but you know she's disconnected from her spiritual side as a waterbender yeah and we see her have to learn that and learn to be more connected to herself spiritually and in the beginning she's very again like opposite that someone pointed out that the most most Korra thing Korra ever did was punching icicles that were being shot at her instead of just bending them away because she's just that, like, how should I say it? She's got that much fire in her that she'll just knock out the ice coming directly at her. Yeah. Which I thought was very badass. And from there, we see her become more cool-headed and she becomes more thoughtful and starts figuring out how to change things and fix things without yeah. going in headstrong yeah she thinks before she starts thinking before she acts she starts reflecting on her past mistakes and we can see how those past mistakes had been eating her up over the last three seasons at the start of season four that's another thing i like that this show does is that instead of brushing off like oh this was amon like whatever happened to this guy like you know he almost killed the cora like instead of just with other heroes instead of brushing that off and just continuing new season new new bad guy you know it does affect her and we do see that negatively affect her well-being yeah and we even see her confront uh zahira the season three villain while she's trying to fight kuvira because she finds herself trying to learn from her enemies too which again is something very different from what the first Korra would have done. The season one Korra would have, and we actually do see a bit of season one Korra in season four when she's trying to have like a spiritual and self reawakening, and she finally comes out to face Kuvira, and she just tries to go again, headstrong, dive in to fight her, and she gets her ass beat, and then she goes back and starts reflecting, trying to figure out why this is happening and why she's not connected to the avatar state and why she's struggling so much. And through that self-discovery, she realizes what's been holding her back. And it's just all the fear of possibly not being an avatar because she identifies so much with it that she thinks that's all she is. And I think the most beautiful part about the show and about Korra is that at the end of the show, she realizes that she is more than the avatar. She's Korra. And she accepts that and she loves herself for that. And I think that's a part, at least that's like a theory for me, is like that self-discovery is also her coming out as gay or bisexual. Because at the end, she has this beautiful self-discovery. She learns to love herself. She learns to accept herself. And once she has accepted herself, she goes with the Sami to the spirit realm and they spend what we assume is the rest of life with each other. So I think that's like that is a transition of her coming out. And I thought that was a very beautiful way to see that too. Yeah, I agree. Except I don't think they spent the rest of their life there. <laughs> to clarify, I don't think they spent the rest of life in the spirit realm, but I think they spent the rest of life together in general, wherever yeah. they were. Mm -hmm. I think there is comics, which I haven't read, but yeah. 
And I just, I really, I really adore all that about Korra. And I really love how much, even when original Avatar writers left, these new writers still put so much into Korra and really made her an extremely well-rounded, well-developed everything character. I think Korra's development comes full circle from the beginning of season one, where she's not as empathetic. She's more obsessed with her own strength and... Um, projecting that image of strength because she's so obsessed with the image of the avatar. I think her arc really comes full circle. So at the end of her fight with Kuvira, Korra gets transported to the spirit world with Kuvira. There you see Kuvira, who's very distraught about her plans for domination not going well. Korra confronts her and lets her know, hey, I understand you. I understand where you're coming from and why you worked so hard to protect your kingdom you wanted a place for where your people wouldn't feel vulnerable from the effects of this world from the effects of any negative people or spirits she empathizes with kuvira and Korra embraces her emotional side kuvira doesn't understand that yet she doesn't understand the positive effects of vulnerability and empathy Cora has accepted that in order to move forward, she needs to face her emotions and be more open with people about her emotions. So that's something that she was lacking and that really helped her push forward and face her struggles, face her inner turmoil. And yeah, I do think that her face off with Kuvira at the end was a really good way of showing her full character development. And I think they did a really good job with her reflecting on herself through Kuvira. And I just think that really just solidifies on how great Korra is and how great her development is and all the positive things she's done and how well she was just all around written. And like I said before, I think that's just so important for women because there's a lot of female leads where they just half-ass it because they're like, well, you, there's the female lead. That's all we need to do. And then they just leave it at that because they just feel like there's nothing more to do when they deserve as much development as any male protagonist. Like Korra. She can be emotional, but she can also be headstrong. She can be both. Yeah. And I think all around, I think Korra's had more development than Aang did because Aang, he just needs to learn to accept his duty and then face it. And Aang had so much development, but Korra really needed to learn to change herself entirely and find herself who she is. And I also think that's really reflective of the demographics these shows are towards. Avatar Last Airbender is really geared towards younger audience, which we see is reflected with Aang being 12 and the whole crew being no more than 16. And at that age, people are trying to more understand what they're here for and what they need to do with themselves. And how they should embrace... Embrace conflict. Mm -hmm. Not embrace conflict, but how they choose to face conflict. Yeah, exactly. And then Korra is geared towards around teenagers, being that Korra and the crew starts off at like 16 years old. And then they go up to about like 22. And during that time is for young people, young adults, is a time of self-reflection and self-discovery. And I thought that those two shows really mirrored their demographics very well. Yeah, I agree. So I think we should get into, at least touch on a bit of the criticism that 
audiences still have towards Korra. So I heard a lot of gripes toward Korra when it first came out, um, saying it wasn't as good as Avatar The Last Airbender, though I never heard any specific reasons why until Avatar re-released on Netflix. People started saying, oh, well, like, uh, don't watch Korra. It's not as good as Avatar was. It'll never live up to the classics. You know, the old, the sequel's never better than the original type thing. But it's not a sequel. It's its own continuation. I mean, it is kind of a sequel, but literally it's a new reincarnation of the story. You said it best before that Korra is a foil to Last Airbender. It's meant to complement it and be a partner to the show rather than being its successor because like you said it's their shows are very different they're from two different generations two different time periods two different styles of writing one being hero's journey point a to point b the other one being more episodic in terms of their seasons every season they're doing something different two different political eras because the whole time in Ing and then last airbender it's all fire nation that's the main conflict that they face versus Korra, things get more complicated with more modernization with more modernization comes more what would you say like antagonists comes more world conflict i was telling geo the other day <laughs> i was on twitter and i saw someone tweet <laughs> their gripes about Korra. He said, oh, you know, all around, I think it was a good show, but I do think Cora was a bit of a Mary Sue saying like, oh, they were really nitpicking the show and were nitpicking Cora's character saying like, oh, when did Cora learn how to use the air staff? Don't you need to be an airbending master to use the air staff? Like, Aang, blah, blah, blah. She just got the air staff. They were all over Cora using this airbending staff. Like, she learned airbending. All you have to do is sail with the wind. I'm assuming it's like hang gliding. Audiences were criticizing Korra for airbending out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere, at the end of season one. When she had been training with Tenzin, an airbending master, the entire season, and those airbending powers were blocked by her emotions. They were brought out because of her emotions at the end. Since she was in a high-stress situation, all her bending got removed. Of course, her being the Avatar, she's going to have a stronger connection to the elements, and those elements are going to be brought out further with her emotions. So, just examples like that, where people are really nitpicking Korra's character. Like, nobody questioned Aang's ability to learn all the elements in just a few months, at the age of, like, 12. Yeah, like, he was a... A 12-year-old airbending master, he had the tattoo and not many people batted an eye. Yet people who are attacking Korra, who's 16 and has had years of mastering all the other elements, and we see her struggle continuously trying to master airbending. And even at the end of season two, she, I think, even says she hasn't even mastered airbending. Mm -hmm. She just did one blast mm -hmm. and she learned how to use the air scooter, but she was she was still learning. Yeah, a lot of people didn't like the pilot episode where they just showed Avatar Korra, a little baby Avatar Korra, bending three out of four elements at her young age. But she is the Avatar. She's going to have a stronger connection to the elements and stronger based on your personality, which, of course, 
she's very fiery and like I said very connected to the physical world so it would be easier for her to learn the physical elements than an element like air which requires more spiritual practice and she's continuously developing her spiritual sense as well she does struggle with um spirit bending as well and i think it does as i say and as i stated earlier it is supposed to be a part of the cycle that when an avatar is reincarnated their reincarnation is supposed to be the embodiment of what they wish they had done before which was that you know ang was very against becoming an avatar he just wanted to be a kid so as a result, Korra was just fully embraced her role as the Avatar or her perception of what the Avatar should be. Exactly. And I think that was also the writer's way of showing the difference between the two characters because instantly Korra just straight up says, I'm the Avatar and you got to deal with it, yeah. which is probably also a jab at the people who are insulting Korra too. Yeah. And then we can also talk about season two, which I will agree season two was not as strong just because of the whole movers arc and Unalak like he was just a typical villain who was power hungry i've gone into more spiritual issues with unalak's character but i do really like the origins of the first avatar in season two but the whole point of talking about season two that's where Korra loses her fight with Latu and ends up cutting off the avatar cycle that's the biggest criticism people have against Korra. I think it obviously was a conscious decision on the writer's end to cut off the Avatar cycle so that Korra can have a period of self-discovery and where she's not relying on her past avatars. And I'm going to be honest, I think people are upset about that because they wanted more past Avatar cameos or more Aang cameos, if I'm being honest. And that moment, too, is such a defining moment for her because, again... She saw herself as nothing more as the Avatar. And having this cut off from her meant that she had to struggle with, am I the Avatar? Then I can bend all the element elements, but I can't connect to my past selves. So that just meant she had to look inside herself and find herself more. Yeah, which is more relatable to people than just being this otherworldly being who can bend four elements that struggle of inner self and self-confidence is something that everybody can relate to a lot of that is i do think because people aren't used to seeing women in these roles so they're instinctively just want to insult that or nitpick that or just be against it altogether mm-hmm. and see it as like oh f- feminist agenda pushing this down our throat and I think that's so unfair. And I feel like for the ones that where that might be true, it's very obvious that that's all people are trying to do is cash in on that. And I think that that's been mainly in examples with video games being with EA likes to put female characters, but do nothing with them because they're just a what token character or they just don't want to put the effort into that character. Yeah. And I would say the the criticism has increased twofold because this is a sequel. People are going to nitpick regardless, even if it was a male lead, but because Kor is a woman, yeah, the hatred is twofold. But regardless of all that criticism, I do find that Korra is a very, very fascinating character. And she's, again, I just think is so well developed and she deals with so much physically and mentally and emotionally and everything. And yeah, I just love her so much and I love everything she has to fight and deal with 
and I appreciate that we got to see that and we got to see a, again and this will be the last time I say it, I promise but I'm so happy we got to see a female character that ran her own show that had a lead and was given so much time to develop and grow and become a new character at the end of the show I agree yeah that's I think that's about all we have to say about Legend of Korra we both really love the show if this was a podcast where we just dove into shows and all that I'm pretty sure we could have to say a lot more especially comparisons to the last airbender and talking more about how they are I think so fitting together but that's all the time we have for now I also noticed that our mic is kind of tweaking out so we should cut it soon but yeah last words avatar Korra's arms amazing oh my gosh and bolin's abs are (laughs) infinitely indestructible but yeah we should be releasing a new episode in two weeks Mm -hmm. and from there we'll see if we can do start doing weekly episodes uh we're not sure what episode we might do it's either looking at we're going to review book children of blood and bone which is well not review but talk about that book which is i thought was very very good those of you who haven't read it please read it it's by tommy adiemi you can find her book where at whatever bookstore it's huge i'm sure people have heard of it if not then we're going to talk about or i'm sorry i'm probably going to talk about the mandalorian because i love that show and i will fight and push to say that i believe that is almost a feminist show too because it's a representation of women in that show and males in that show. Yeah, so we definitely want our next episode to be something outside the realm of animation, since right now our podcast is leaning a little bit more towards animated media. So, yeah, we want to step away from that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Of course, we love it here, but um, we do want to talk about other forms of media, since it's something we had talked about since the beginning of this podcast. Yeah, so those will be the two you can look forward to. We'll put more updates later on. And yeah, I think the very last thing to say is please review our podcast on Apple Podcasts and interact with us on our Instagram, which is should all be in our description. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you so much, and we can look forward to the next one. Bye.